mind, we have been turning to Matthew chapter 11. We've been spending several months now walking through uh, the book of Matthew. And the reason we do that is because we want to get a full perspective on what it is the Bible actually teaches. We want to make sure that we study the Bible in context. So we're not just randomly picking a few verses here and there, but really, if you see it in context, you can see the flow of God's plan. You can see the flow of God's redemptive purposes for us and for this world and for His people. Um, So we're going to be in chapter 11 today. Uh, But before we read that, it was cold, dark, and it smelled of urine. The walls were thick and damp, and it was a place that you would avoid. He sat there on the ground, feeling the dirt. And as he put his hands into the dirt, he was reminded of the previous times in his life when the crowds who had come out to hear him would turn the grass of the field into dirt. And that was just even months before he was in this dark, cold, dank place. At that same time, after he felt the dirt, he moved forward slightly to where there was a light in the room. There was only one light in this particular room. And it was hard for him to get to it because the chains would pull at his ankles and at his wrists. And he wrapped his hand around that flame, that tiny little flame, and discovered that it gave him almost no warmth. And he was reminded in that moment of the fact that he felt his heart was in the same place. That the, the flame, which had once been burning hot passion, that his heart for the causes of God, for the mission of Jesus, felt like this little flicker of a flame, barely giving off any light or heat. And just in that moment, he heard some footsteps outside the door where he was locked up. And he knew who it was. He knew that there was only a couple of people that would be let into this particular prison, and it had to be some of his followers. Some of his followers had come, and they got about three minutes together, and he was going to have a chance to share with them a few thoughts. And as they approached the cold bars, he pressed his head in close, and he thought for a moment that he shouldn't speak at all. Because he knew from the condition of his own heart the type of words that were about to come out of his mouth. But it was too late. The cat was out of the bag. The words had come pouring out of his mouth because they had welled up in his heart. And here's what he said to his followers. He said, I'm sending you back to him. And I want you to ask him a question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? He knew he 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 didn't want to ask that question because he knew the moment he told his followers to go back and ask Jesus that very question, they would know his heart was full of doubt. They would know that these prison bars had almost extinguished the flame of passion and that he truly thought his suffering could cause him to stop following the man he had given his life to, the man who had brought the crowds the man who he had been the forerunner for. This was John the Baptist. Let's read about this particular story 
in Matthew chapter 11. We're going to start with verse 2 because verse 1 actually connects to the previous section, the previous context. So starting in verse 2 of chapter 11. Now John, that is John the Baptist, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So ends the reading of God's word. We're going to take a few moments this morning to look into doubt. Now, let's start with this uh, context. Let's start with this uh, idea that you find on the nightly news. I don't know how often you watch the nightly news. It's not something most people do anymore. We tend to just check the internet news feed that's on the side. But if you do ever watch the nightly news, usually the head story, the first story that comes up on the news is what? Yeah, big and bad. And it's, it's especially um, helpful for the news stations if there's been a, a murder or a double murder or a mass murder, something along those lines. Um, that's what they're, they're going to put at, on the front page. They might even name it if it's a big enough event. Why? Because it sells. Because it sells. Because it's trying to grab their attention, and, the, and the, your attention. And they know that you're sitting there on your couch and you've got your finger hovering over the channel button and if something doesn't grab you, you're about to switch the channel. And they know also that if they can put murder, death, disease front and center, you might stick around. Now why would you stick around? That sounds depressing. You'd stick around because like everyone else, you're fascinated too with the murder, the mass murder, or the disease that's moving around. Why? Because whether we want to admit it or not, we all have to, by being born on this earth, we all have to carry around with us the fact that we must occasionally think about the dread of death. We don't like to. We obviously distract ourselves as much as possible from thinking about something that terrible. But it presses in on us. And the news knows that. They know it's always kind of pressing in on us. And they know, if I can grab this person's attention, let me grab it with something that's always kind of pressing in on people. Pain and suffering are certainly also causes for people to doubt God. You see it all the time. It's a great philosophical question that's come down through the ages, right? If God is all good... And if God is all-powerful, why the pain and suffering? You see it on the front page of newspapers. You probably have friends who've presented that very case before you. Because it's true. Christianity and the Bible and God and the Old Testament, by making claims that there's this all-powerful God and making claims that this God is also all-loving, has to deal with it. It's a problem actually created by, by the Bible. But it's also a problem that's answered by the Bible. And I think we see a picture this morning 
a, a small slice. This isn't everything. But we see a small slice of how Jesus, how the Bible answers this pressing problem of pain and suffering, not only in the world, but in our own life. I don't know if you may have had something even recently that has caused you to think about, hmm, why would God do that? What's your plan here? What's your play, God? Because this is hard. And I don't want to deal with this. And I'm questioning your goodness. I'm questioning your purposes, if we're honest. And I think we have a picture here. John the Baptist and Jesus together are going to show us what do we do with doubt? Especially doubt caused by pain, caused by suffering, caused by the the, the agony all around us. So let's dive into it. There's three things that I think this passage shows us when it comes to doubt and doubt caused especially by suffering. And here are the three things John and Jesus teach us. Grasp the right question, number one. Gain the right perspective, number two. Give the right response, number three. Grasp, gain, give. Yeah, you're welcome. There, some alliteration there. You're welcome. Just in case you like to just kind of store it in your mind, because I can tell most people aren't taking notes. Fair enough. Let's start here. Grasp the right question. John comes to Jesus with the right question. He's asking if he's the one, but let's 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 not start there. Let's start with what, what's the wrong question to ask Jesus when there are doubts that come up because of pain and suffering. I believe the wrong question is, am I? Am I going to get what I need and want from this religion and from this person? Am I going to be accepted or rejected in the lifestyle choices that I'm making? Am I going to get exactly what my dreams have been pushing me towards? If I'm going to believe Jesus, you will be the one, will you be the one, I should say, to make my dreams come true? Am I going to get what I ask for if I serve you? Am I? I believe that's the wrong question, even though it's the question I often bring to God and that many other people bring to God. A a, a biblical example is this, this dude named the rich young ruler. So there's this really wealthy, he's probably in his you know, mid-20s, mid-30s. Uh, he's got it all. He's got incredible possessions, incredible wealth, uh, even at such a young age. And he comes to Jesus and he says, <clears throat> Jesus, I, I've got most of it together. Like, <laughs> look, at, look at me, my life. I've got power, I've got money. What must like? What are some things that I need to add to make sure that I get the full happiness that I'm looking for? You know, you can just see him. He, he comes in, in a, an incredible amount of pride, and he's like, "What are some deeds that I might be able to sort of tack on to my current schedule in life, um, so that you know that I can get the good things that I know that you promise uh, to those around you?" And Jesus is like, "Okay, have you followed the law?" The guy's like, "Yeah, totally. There, I'm gotcha. I'm there." Rock on. What else do I need to do? And Jesus is like, okay, you need to understand that I'm the one. He doesn't say it in those exact words, but Jesus implies that. He says, if I ask for all, you must give all. If I am the one, 
that I am worthy of everything? That's the same question John the Baptist is asking, and it is the right question. John the Baptist asks, are you the one? Are you? Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? This is not just an important question for John. This is an important question for all of humanity, for everyone, for each of us, for me. Really, Jesus, this matters. Are you the one? You know, a good way for us to think about this is is the question that is posed along those same lines when it's a romantic relationship. I don't know if you did this, if you had some like girlfriends or guy friends that came up to you when you were dating uh, your current uh, spouse, or maybe you haven't, don't have a spouse yet, don't have a husband or a wife yet. Thankfully, Hunter does not. <laughs> but what's the question people want to ask if you're getting closer and closer to marriage? Is this the one? Is this the one? Is she the one? Is he the one? And what do they mean by that? Yeah. Is this the person you're going to commit to with everything? That's what they mean. Is this the one you're going to focus your life on? Is this the one you're going to love till death do you part? That, to some degree, is also behind the question being asked by John of Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the one that I am meant to give all of my devotion to, my everything, my life? Because I'm sitting here in prison, and I'm cold, and I'm hungry, and I think I'm about to die. And as we know, as the story goes on, in fact, he does. His head is chopped off and put on a platter. He doesn't know that quite yet, but he can feel it. Because Jesus, if you're not, this wasn't worth it. Me sitting here in prison is not worth it if you're not the one. If you are not God himself, the power behind life joined with you as the one. Are you that? Because if you are, it makes all the difference in the world. And the same is true for us. We have to at some point, we have to ask that question. Even in the midst of suffering, is he the one? Is he the Savior of the world? And that question answers all the other questions. All the am I questions, am I going to get what I want, am I going to have a good life, am I, all of that is subsumed under the much more important question of are you the one? Because if you are the one, Jesus, then you are the one who gets to determine the course of my life. You are the one who gets to determine what my dreams are. And if they come true, you are the one who gets to tell me exactly what it is that I need to be doing and how I need to be doing it and when I need to be doing it. See how how that works? See how important that question is for our lives? And how important it is if Jesus is the one? And quick side note before we move on to point two. It's also important that John asks him, are we to look for another? Because John the Baptist knows, and we know if we're honest, that if he's not the one, we have to go searching for another. It doesn't mean, Jesus, John doesn't ask, are you the one or is there nothing? It's not, he doesn't ask that. He says, because if you're not the one, we're all on a search for the next one. We are all on the, on the search for that 
which is going to bring us happiness, life, goodness, truth. We will, we will keep searching if you're on it. Same is true for us. If you don't land on Christ, your life will be a journey, a search for that which only Christ can provide. I believe he is the one. But it's a question that I can't answer for you. You have to ask it with your heart today. Secondly, so John shows us when there are doubts, when suffering is hitting, John and Jesus together are showing us how can we grasp the right question, but also can we gain the right perspective? And what do I mean by gain the right perspective? Jesus answers John's question um, very graciously. I don't know if you noticed that, but Jesus could have easily said, John, seriously? You're, after all this, after all that you've seen, after all that I've done, you're now coming to me asking if I'm the one? John was like one of the closest people to him. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the one prophesied about in the Old Testament. And this guy, this very guy is coming to him and saying, are you the one? Is this for real? But Jesus is gracious. He, just, he calmly tells these followers, these disciples that John has sent to him, and he says, go back and tell John what you see and what you hear. In other words, as Matthew has recounted in chapters 5 through 7, the words of Jesus, and Matthew's chapter 8 and 9, the deeds of Jesus, he says, go and report these things. Go back and tell him. Go back and tell him that this is the journey. And what do I mean by that? I am coming to the poor, I am coming to the needy, and I am telling people that they are poor and they are needy. This is the journey, John. Can you gain the right perspective on it? Because see, John was a good Jew, and so he understood what, what I'm really looking for, and this is John speaking right now, what I'm really looking for is a national leader who's going to free us from the captivity of the Romans, obviously. That's what I really want as a Jew in the first century. And I'm in jail right now. I told one of the governors that he was a bad man because he was sleeping with his sister, and now I'm in jail and I'm about to be killed. Overthrow him, Jesus. Come on. Where's this power? Where's this movement? And Jesus is like, this is not the path. This isn't it, John. The path is one of humility, service, and suffering. That is a tough perspective to gain. And I mean, that's especially hard, as you might imagine, for John the Baptist, as he's sitting there in prison. But Jesus is saying, this is the way. And he's actually foreshadowing the fact that his own life is going to take that very path. This is the way. Jesus says, my kingdom turns your understanding of the Messiah on its head, John. This happening, this journey to the cross, I'm going to call it the journey to the cross, one of suffering, humility, and service, is what the kingdom is all about. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Jesus said, let the children come to me. He said, I am going to be, later on in Matthew, we'll hit this more uh, frequently, uh, he says to his disciples, I am going to be tortured and I'm going to be killed. This is the journey, John. And as my follower, you're on the journey too. He's not just saying that to John the Baptist, he's saying it to us too. That is an, a difficult perspective. I'm not going to lie. 
to say yes, that is the journey of Jesus' life, and that will be, if I am a disciple of his, if I am a follower of Jesus, that will be the journey of my own life. Have you embraced that? Have you gained that perspective? But there's more. And there's more we can find even on that topic. There's more we can find from the right response. So this is the last point. Give the right response. John and Jesus teach us about what is the right response. Now, this, the clarity of this point comes out from the final question that Jesus says, or the final statement Jesus says to take back to John the Baptist sitting in prison. He says, and blessed are those that are not offended by me. That is, hands down, the strangest beatitude in all the Bible. Hands down. It is super bizarre. Wrestle with it. I had to wrestle with it this week. Another way to say it is happy. That's what the word blessed means. Happy are those that are not offended by me. Let's first look at offense. What causes us to get offended? What causes you to get offended? Anybody? Ignorance. Ignorance? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I have some written down, so in case I know you're thinking about a lot of different things. We get offended when someone makes fun of us or makes fun of someone we love. We get offended when someone belittles others out of ignorance or whatever the reason. Sometimes we get offended when someone cuts us off in line. We get offended when somebody criticizes our work. We get offended when somebody talks down to us. We get offended when somebody's crude, rude, or mean. We get offended when somebody slaps us or hurts us. We get offended when someone blows us off. We get offended when someone doesn't show up for a meeting. They said they were going to show up. We get offended when someone breaks a promise to us. There's a lot of things that cause us to get offended. Um, there's a, I mean, you could sort of be offended all the time if you went ahead and just embraced it for what it is. But here's the deal. Even someone who says they're not easily offended, try them. (laughs) Try them. Um, Because another principle that goes along with being offended by someone is that the more power someone has, uh, the offense tends to sting even more. Right? So if if a middle schooler comes up to you and is like, ha ha, you're dressed funny. You know, we can kind of categorize that and be like, okay, middle schooler, you know, I know you're feeling insecure and you want to make fun of my clothing, but uh, I'm going to have to say that, that this looks fine for someone my age. Uh, you know, like all buttoned up and starched up. It's okay. I look, I, look, I look decent. But, you know, if the person who's working at J. Crew when you're going in to buy a pair of pants is like, <laughs> yeah, you need, to, <laughs> you, need to get, you need to check on that. <laughs> Let me help you. You know, it's, it's, the, the fence is a lot bigger. And it's true for somebody who's in, a, a, in power over us, a boss, a teacher, a parent. The offense just feels greater when they have more power, when they do something to us that belittles us or that talks down to us or that, that is crude or rude or mean to us. Here's an example of this. Um, or no, before I give the example first, if we're honest, Jesus was, is, and will continue to be offensive. We have to, like, grasp that. Get it. Jesus is offensive. How so? Well, his claims are offensive, and the cross is offensive. Let me explain. His claims are offensive because he said, I am the power behind life. I am God. 
I am that thing that people try to identify and call it spirituality, whatever it is. That's me. I am God. Okay, not many people claim that. They're obviously afraid to. I mean, that, that's a, that's a, it is huge. C.S. Lewis talks about this a lot. He's one of my favorite authors. This guy wrote in the middle 20th century. And he's like, Jesus was either a raving lunatic or he was actually what he claimed to be. That is, the Son of God. His claims are offensive. I remember, speaking of being offended, I was in college, and I'm at this like corner store, C, 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 you know, convenience store. And there's this guy in front of me in line, and he's uh, trying to order from the sweet lady who's checking people out at the convenience store. And he's like, I want one cigarette. <laughs> and she's like, sir, I don't have one cigarette. You can buy a pack of cigarettes, or you can buy nothing. But you can't buy one cigarette. He's like, give me one cigarette. And he is getting up in her face. He's yelling at her. And I'm, finally, I'm like, dude, calm down. She can't give you one cigarette. You know, because he wanted it, he only had like 35 cents or something like that. And, uh, and he turns around at me and just goes silent. And I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh, what's up? Uh, I'm not prepared for this. And he, he like stares me down and starts kind of walking towards me. So I walk out of the store and he's following right behind me. I'm like, oh boy. So I grab my bike, thankfully, which was sitting right outside the door. And, you know, I get on my bike and I'm like, I'm out of here. And so I start riding literally down the two yellow line stripes because he has, as I've gotten my bike, he has picked up his pace and he is following directly behind me. And he is, I mean, he is trucking. And I'm in the middle lane. There's literally cars coming by and he is running down the center of the road and he raises his hands behind me and he says, I am Jesus Christ. You know, and I'm like, I'm offended. I was already offended. Now I'm deeply offended. Obvi- now, admittedly, this, this things of that nature happened on a f- somewhat frequent basis. There was a men- mental institution that was right next to our college campus. So, just keep that in mind. But nonetheless, it was a bit of a scary event for me. Because saying that you are the savior of the world is offensive, if not true. Is it true? Jesus certainly seemed to not only speak it, but live it. Jesus, his claims, yes, offensive. But he says, if you can have the right response, if you can get over that offense, he says, John, happy are those who are not offended by me, who understand actually who I am and what I have come to do. John, and he goes on and he says, and, and the, the, or I go on, The cross is also offensive. Not just the claims of Jesus. The cross is offensive. Think about it this way. Let's say you're at a surprise birthday party. Fun times. Music's going well. You're enjoying it. Presents are starting to roll in. You know, all your friends are there. Food and drink. I mean, this is a great party. And then one of your closest friends grabs you by the arm and says, come here, I've got this awesome gift for you. And they pull you into one of the back rooms and they're like, here, take this. And they hand you like a whole new set of clothing and they're like, you're going to look better when you put these on. And then they like, and then your friend, she, your friend, she hands you like uh, some makeup, assuming you were a girl, okay? She hands you some makeup and says, here, put this on. You're going to look a lot better. And here's, here, here, take this. Uh, I've got to get another gift for you. It's a book on etiquette. You're going to act a lot better after you read this book. And, and here, here, take this. Here's a few phone numbers. You might get a date if you call a couple of these numbers. Try it. it it's amazing. 
How would you feel about the gifts your friend was giving you? How would you feel about those gifts? Would you say, hey, thanks? Hey, thanks. Probably not. If you're really, if you were really tight with this person, you might. But more than likely, you're going to say, really? Like, that's kind of offensive. Like, it's, I know it's a gift that you're giving me, but you're saying that I'm not pretty, that I don't dress well, and that I can't get any, guy. I can't get any guys. This is kind of hard. Like, that's a weird gift. That's the cross times a thousand. The cross is a gift, right? The Bible claims that it's a gift to us. But it's a gift that says, you're a mess. You are a wreck. You are incapable of even beginning to turn towards God. Whatever good things you've done in your life is like putting lipstick on a pig. That is what the cross says. That is offensive. I don't know about you, but I feel like I'm kind of a nice person. I've done a few good things in my life, right? The cross says, nope. You have zero to offer. When you stand before God, you melt. You are as a dead person. You are as a filthy, wretched sinner before God. Oh, oh that's, that's kind of painful. But that's the message of the cross. That's the message that Jesus preached. It's the message that his followers still preach even today. You may have heard me say this before. Uh, and you'll see it even on the website. But I love this, this phrase that I heard in this Bible study that I did a long time ago. It was, cheer up. You're much worse than you think you are. <laughs> but also, cheer up. God's grace is greater than you ever could imagine. The grace and forgiveness of God, not just the cross, are also offensive. Because it says you can't anything at all to save yourself. It is going to be 100% because of Jesus. And, and Jesus says to John, John who is in pain, John who is suffering, John the Baptist who's in pain and suffering, he's in prison, he says to him, John, if you can get this, you can be happy even in the midst of your pain. This is a consistent I'll close with this. This is a consistent theme in the scriptures. There can be, nay, there should be, joy and happiness in the midst of the pain and suffering. James chapter 1. Count it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And again, finally, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul the Apostle says, So we do not lose heart, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Happiness is not something you get by going after happiness. Happiness is something that is given to you as you pursue that which is right. 
as you have the right perspective, as you have the right response, as you understand the right question to ask before the king of the universe, that is Jesus. I encourage us all, I encourage myself, I encourage us all. Make sure, make sure that you're seeing him for who he really is and not a figment of your imagination or the namby-pamby good little teacher that our society wants to shove on us. He is the one.